0: You're listening to a sermon from Tyler Christian Fellowship in Tyler, Texas. Find us on the web at tcftyler.com or send us an email, tcftyler at gmail.com. We're continuing our series uh, uh, that uh, you are the lighter of the world. Um, the key scripture from the ser- for the series is uh, um, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. And Jesus says, You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And today we're going uh, to... I've titled the sermon, um, Not All Who Wander Are Lost. That's um, not original with me. A guy named J.R. Tolkien uh, came up with that. Um but uh, we're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about the exile in Babylon. And there's probably not any passage of Scripture um, that so, illu- so illustrates what Jesus is talking about here um, as, uh, as what happened to Israel when they were in Babylon. We're going to look at uh, Daniel and the three Hebrew children. We're also just going to look at the principle of, um, of exile um, and how God has uh, made, interwoven that uh, principle throughout Scripture. Um, So uh, I'll just give you some kind of introductory remarks. Um, The the point of this whole series is, um, like, how do we relate to the world? How do we relate to the culture in which we live? A lot of people have compared um, what our experience is now to Israel living in uh, Babylon, in that we're living in uh, an environment that on some level may be very uh, familiar to us, that we may feel right at home in. Uh, But in reality, uh, when Peter wrote to uh, the churches in Galatia, um, he said, um, he called them pilgrims and strangers. And even though we may live in a place where people look a lot like us, talk with the same language, have very similar um, social uh, norms uh, and culture, um, we are really foreigners here um, because this world is not our home. And we were made for something else. And we're actually, as the Holy Spirit is working inside of us, He's, become, He's making us uh, more suited for heaven. Uh, and, and we find ourselves more and more um, sort of different than the culture uh, that we're in. So how do we, what do we do? How do we relate to that? Well, the way that uh, Israel uh, related when they were uh, in um, exile um, gives us some uh, instructions and some... Um, Some insights and some examples of what we can and should do. Um, I've said this before. It's um, the big question of the universe is um, who's in charge. That's the big question of the universe. That's the question that you have to answer. But that's the question that every creature, you know, every man, woman, and child has to answer um, that question. And just because you believe in God or that there is a God doesn't necessarily mean that you completely understand and allow him to be in charge of your life and also recognize that he's in charge of everything else. So the big question of the universe is who's, uh, who's in charge? There's many ways to answer that, but there's only one correct way to answer that. Um, there is a God in heaven. Uh, he is almighty and all-powerful, uh, and he controls um, the, the earth and everything on it. He has given us free will, and we get to choose, okay, but the only sane thing for us to choose is to put ourselves willingly under His authority and seek Him and obey Him and follow Him. Amen? I'm talking to God's people this morning, so I expect you guys are all saying amen on the inside, even if you're not saying it on the outside. Some people just don't like to talk in church. It's just like, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying stuff. So. But this is a safe place, so you can speak up and you can, uh, you can say your peace. Um, amen. And I know June well. She is my amen corner. I love that. Um, so here's the deal. Like when Israel goes into, into exile, um, here, here's the way that it worked in, uh, in this time and still works today um, to some extent. Um, is that nations would rise up and they would see other nations that had goods or services or people or whatever that they wanted. And so they would conquer those people and they would take that stuff and they would make that stuff their own. And they would take those people and incorporate them like they take the best of the best. They would co- incorporate them into their society. They would invite them into um, places of training and uh, uh, and, and uh, to prepare them for power, and in so doing, they became stronger and stronger and stronger. They didn't just conquer land just to have more land. They conquered it so that they would have more power and more riches and more skills and more abilities. And uh, sometimes they were very, very brutal in doing that. But a lot of times when they were conquering, what they believed is that their gods were greater gods than the people that they were conquering. And not only that, but the people that were conquered many times had to come to the realization that their God had failed, that their God had lost, and that this other God was stronger and mightier. And if they wanted to be strong and mighty, they had to submit themselves to this God, not their old God. They had to say that this God is the conquering God and this God is the, uh, is the one that we follow and that we you know, sacrifice to and all of that. But Israel was different. Because when Israel went into um, exile, they believed that it was God that sent them into exile. They didn't believe that God had lost. They believed that God's purposes had prevailed. They looked at themselves because God had told them over and over again and and pleaded with them and contended with them over and over again through the prophets, um, through circumstances, through signs and wonders and things that he did. Over and over again, he was calling them back to himself. There's some passages in uh, in the uh, prophets where God tries to reason with them. And he says, who has ever heard of this? Who has ever heard of a people exchanging a real God for a false God? You make these gods out of wood. You know they're made out of wood. You made them. And you bow down to worship them, and you turn your back on the God who divided the Red Sea. That little wooden thing, never divided the Red Sea, never performed, never did anything. The only thing, only power that it has is the power that you have invested in it. And God tried to reason with them. And over and over again, Israel would sell themselves off into slavery, into bondage, because they worshipped false gods and they were not true to the real God. And when it came to the Babylonian captivity, it was a real backbreaker. It changed the course of Israel's history. Because the Babylonian captivity was not the first captivity. It was not the first time that they had gone into exile. But it was a watershed event. They never again possessed their land as the nation of Israel. They were always under some other government, some other leadership. They went back into the promised land and they were living in the promised land. But listen, even then they were living in exile because they were not in charge. And it would, they, they knew that that was not because their God had failed them. All these other nations, when they got conquered, it was, a, it was a sign that their God was not powerful enough to deliver them. When Israel got conquered, it was a sign that God was going to deal with them as he wanted to deal with them and that Babylon may have been the hand that he used, but that, the, that was a hand of God toward them. We're going to look at a couple of stories from the Babylonian captivity that demonstrates just how deeply Israel, um, uh, even in captivity, came to believe more strongly based on their experiences um, in uh, in exile. Um, And they're not the only ones that came to believe. The people that they went into exile under also came to believe that God who Israel served was the God of the universe, was the real God. Now, the principle of exile runs throughout the Bible. It starts with Adam and Eve. They are exiled from the Garden of Eden. Uh, It goes uh, goes straight through. So um, Abraham left the, the, he he in a way went into exile because he left the familiar, he left his hometown. But he did that not as a punishment or not, not because he couldn't make it in his hometown. He did that because God called him out. Nevertheless, his experience was the same thing. He goes out of a familiar place into an unfamiliar place. He goes out of a place where he had had property and a position into into a place that he's totally dependent upon God. And then Abraham's son, uh, grandson Jacob, also went into exile. Remember that? And that was because he had uh, tricked his brother uh, into handing over the birthright. And so he had to run. He had to run from his brother and went into exile, God prospered him. He lived with, in, uh, uh, in a foreign country under uh, Laban, uh, married a couple of uh, women, had a, you know, a passel of uh, kids, um, and came back into the promised land, into, the, into um, uh, where he had been living before in Canaan. Um, but he was, they were only there for a short time. They were only there for one generation. And then you remember his son Joseph also went into exile. He was abused by his brothers. It might have been his fault to some extent, I mean, he was, he, did, he was not, like, really judicious about the way he talked to his brothers, you know, bragging to him about a dream where they were going to bow, bow down to him. I mean, like, what do you think is going to happen? They already don't like him very much, you know. And so he comes in bragging about this dream and that his father is going to, you know, is going to do this stuff and that his, his father gave him this coat, you know, of many colors. And all they could think was, who does this guy think he is? We'll show him who he is. And so they beat him within an inch of his life, and then they sold him to the slave traders, and he goes into exile into, into Egypt. Are you getting the pattern here? So, that, so it's, it, exile is not like an exception to the rule. Almost every major um, um, figure in the Bible was in exile. David himself was in exile for a while from the presence of Saul um, because Saul was jealous of him, and Saul sought his life, and so he had to flee. Jesus went into exile as an infant. You remember that? Because, the, um, because Herod um, s- tried to kill him and killed a bunch of other kids. And so they went into exile into Egypt. So the early church, right? The early church had a place in Jerusalem. And when um, Stephen was killed, uh, immediately there was a persecution that broke out. I mean, these people were brokenhearted. I mean, Stephen was the best of the best. He was one of their they're bright, uh, shining, you know, young uh, uh, men, um, leaders. And he was brutally killed. And after that, there was a dispersion of the church. So in a way, they went into exile. They went into foreign lands. They went into places that were not familiar to them. Um, and so anyway, it's a principle that, that goes through it. You may have experienced this as well. You may have had a, char- a course for your life charted out, and then you wind up way over here, and you're just like, what just happened? How did I wind up here? And some of it might have been, like Israel with you, it's your own fault. But even if it's your own fault, God still has purposes for you. And there's a good chance that it might not. You might have been doing everything right that God wanted you to do, and he treated you like a child, like a son, like a daughter, like someone that he loves And he's going to let you have an experience that you would never have dreamed of. You would never have chosen. Nevertheless, he had it in mind for you. So if you find yourself in that position in exile, listen to this message, okay? Because God's not done with you. And it doesn't mean that you're being punished. It might mean that he's just opening doors that never would have been opened um, otherwise. And the second thing I want to talk about just as an introduction is the tension that we're under. You understand that when, uh, when uh, people came to Jesus and they said, what's the great, you know, what, what is the law? What is the, what is the essence of the law? And he, and he taught them that there were two great um, commandments. The first is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's all, isn't it? I mean, what else do you have to love with? And then he said the second is like unto it because it's related to it. So you start. But there's another one that results from that, and that is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that I see this is, like, um, if you're driving around um, out in the country, you can see these huge aerials that go up. I guess they're television aerials. Um, They may be radio aerials. I'm not even sure what they use them for anymore. Telephone? Telephone aerials? I don't know. But you see these huge aerials that go up literally thousands of feet into the air, and they are so Thin. Now, I know they're made out of steel, but they're, they're extremely light for their, for their height, um, and they're, they're secured by guy wires. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Puts us under tension, and that's what makes us strong. Those guy wires put that structure under tension, and that's what makes it strong. If it didn't have those guy wires, it would collapse, It would completely, it would never be able to stand. But because it's under tension, in just the right amount, in just equal amounts, pulling it in different directions, it's strong. It's extremely strong. It can can withstand high winds. It can withstand, you know, extreme temperatures. Um, It can withstand extreme heat in East Texas, right? You, don't, you may not think about it, but this structure is exposed to all the elements, and yet it stands year after year after year, and it's a very stable structure. And so are you when you are under tension to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If all you had to do was love God, you would be impossible to live with because you wouldn't care what anybody else said. You would just like, this is what God said to do, and I don't care about you. I think the Pharisees were a lot like that. The Pharisees had lost lost sense of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, because they didn't act very loving to their neighbor, right? The Sadducees, on the other hand, loved people. They just didn't know hardly anything about God. They didn't know about the power of God. They didn't walk in the fear of God. They just were going kind of through the motions. And if all I had to do was love people, then I wouldn't care what God said about stuff. And you know there's people that are like that on both extremes. Some people that are just really, you know, legalistic and by the letter and really don't care about people, and it comes across in the way they deal with people. Some people love people, but they have nothing. They don't even know what God wants or what God requires of people. But we are people that are people that are under tension from both things. I am obligated to love God, and I am obligated to love my neighbor. I am commanded To do these things. It's not out of the goodness of my heart, it's out of obedience to Jesus Christ. And it flows out of that first great commandment. If I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, I will love the things that He loves, and the things that He loves are people. But I'll love them with a godly love, not with a a human love. I will love them with an unconditional love, not with a conditional, what can you do for me love? I will love them with a saving love, with a sacrificial love, not with a selfish, self-gratifying love. And that's what God has called us to do. And as we reach into the world, as we, you know, move out of our comfortable spots here, out into the uncomfortable real world, this is real. I'm not saying it's not real, okay? This is such an awesome aspect of the real world, okay? But it's not the whole real world, There's another part of the real world where people really need what the people in this place have in abundance, in overabundance, that are flowing forth like a well springing up to eternal life. And you never know how valuable that is to put it on the line out there. So anyway, I wanted to introduce it that way because I want you to know that that's what Daniel was walking in, that's what the three Hebrew children were walking in. It was like a pure, passionate love for God that manifested itself in serving their enemies. And in, in, uh, God said, I'm going to sell you off into, um, into exile. And he said, don't resist it. There were prophets that were saying, surely the Lord will not sell you off into exile. You should stay in the land and all this. God said, if you stay in the land, you're going to die. There's only one way that you're going to live. And that's if you go into exile, like I'm sending you into exile. Do not stay in the land, he said. But he said, if you go into the land, if you go into, into exile, he said, pray for the peace of the city. Cause the city to prosper, plant vineyards, you know, uh, have, have families, raise kids, and expect to, to prosper that place that you're going into. That's what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies, and these people are enemies, and yet they go in, and they, and they live, and they begin to prosper the place where they're sent to. Loving God propels us to great deeds of courage. Loving others gives us uh, favor with, their, with them, with power. So if I love God, then I am going to be uh, courageous when I'm serving Him. And if I love, love others, God is going to give me favor with others. And He's going to cause me to prosper. So many examples of this uh, in the Old Testament. Among them, Daniel, um, Moses... Um, Joseph uh, and others. We relate to power, not with fear, but with strength. Let me say that again. We relate to power, not with fear, but with strength. And we're going to see that illustrated in the stories today. We're going to see how being submitted to God's authority can win us great respect and love from others, even ungodly rulers, these are stories that are just stories of simple obedience. We live in an age that worships power. Just a little bit more introduction, and then we'll get into it, okay? We live in an, in an age um, that um, uh, worships uh, power, worships riches, worships power, worships the very wrong things. Um, so they, they follow people who apparently who have the facade of power, but don't really have the heart of God. Um, And we feel the pressure to conform to that. But how are we supposed to relate to ungodly authority? Uh, Let's see if I got this quote. Bonhoeffer in 1935 said, Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they do now. Christians should take a strong stand in favor of the weak rather than considering the first possible right of the strong rather than considering first the possible right of the strong. And you know what he was living in the midst of in 1935. That's when Nazism was ascending. That's when the church was under attack. Um, That's when um, so many people were following after a worldly ruler who more and more was manifesting that he had evil intentions in his heart um, toward people. And he was crying out to the church saying the Christians should take a stronger stand in favor of the weak. Here's what the, um, the devil's um, method is, and this is the method of the, of the terrorists. They terrorize or they, they abuse a small number to strike fear into a large number. And so like the Nazis, when they would be marching uh, the Jews to the, uh, uh, to the gas chamber, there would be like four guys with guns marching a crowd of 1,000 th- people. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid to be that one that was shot. They were afraid to be that one, and so they were all killed. They needed somebody to stand up, and not just one, but a multitude of voices to stand up and say, this is not right, and be willing to take the consequences. So let's go to Daniel. Um, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I'm going to hit this as quick as I can. I might just continue this next week because it's already noon, so... Um, I might just continue this. Let's just do uh, do one. Okay, do one story. Um, well, I want to do the three Hebrew, Hebrew children. I'm skipping. Fast forward. This is all really good stuff. You're going to be really sorry. No, I, I'm sure it'll come up again. I, I reuse all this stuff, as you well know. Uh, I'm working on new stories. So so this is uh, Daniel, I mean, yeah, Daniel chapter 3. And it says, uh, okay, so here's the background to the story. Um, the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, had made a, an idol of gold. And I always thought that this was like a towering statue. It's not even that big. It's like 45 centimeters or something like that. Centimeters is just like, what? That? How big is a centimeter? It's not a, it's not a minute, meter, right? There's like 10 of them in a meter, right? So it's like 45 centimeters tall, so it's like, huh? Huh? Oh, ask the English kids how big is 45 centimeters. I just love that they came and sat on the front row. 2.14? <laughs> It's not big, okay? It's not even, not even as big as a big kid, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying that you have to bow down um, to worship this thing, and the whole country is bowing down to worship him. Why? Because they're scared to death of this guy. They know this guy can kill him, and they're just like, I don't really believe in that God, but who cares, you know? I'm going to bow down to worship him. And Shad- Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed- Abednego said, no, we're not going to do that. And so word got to the, to the king, to, the, to his advisors um, that these people wouldn't do it. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar had him in to the palace. And he says, okay, now, here's, here's what we're going to do. He's now, now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Who is, um, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Good question. He's saying, who's in charge? He's asking the question of the universe. Who is the God that's going to deliver them out of, out of my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, And so they were immediately... So he, he wanted the furnace heated up, what was it, seven times, ten times? Extreme amount. He was pushing it to its limits. It's the hottest furnace that they can possibly make at that time. And, and they opened the door, and they cast them in, and the guys that cast... It's so hot that the guys that cast them in got killed. And, they, and they're in... So they're cast in there. And Nebuchadnezzar just had to have a look. He just wanted to see the charred remains of these people who had the gall to stand up to him. And when he looked in... What did he see? He saw those three guys walking around, but he saw something else. He saw a fourth person in there, and he said, it looked like the Son of Man. Our God can deliver us. But even if He doesn't, we will die. Let me, let me tell you a, a couple of things that I get from this story. Number one is that they had already counted themselves dead. They were not trying to preserve themselves. They were not trying to save their lives. They had already counted themselves dead. And this is why it's so important. Because all of Babylon is looking at this. And so is all of Israel. And listen to me, if you're going to die, you might as well die with some courage. Because if those guys died with courage, it would put courage into Israel. Even if they died, it would put courage into Israel and they would say, I want to be like them. But if they went in and they begged for their lives and they groveled and then they were killed anyway, it would instill fear into Israel. Those guys said, and I don't think they were just doing it to to show anybody else anything. It was what was in their heart. They said, we don't want to live in a world where we have to worship a false god that's not a god. Yes, we're here in captivity. Yes, we've been taken out of our promised land. But that was on us. That was not on him. He has been nothing but faithful. He has been nothing but good. He has shown Himself mighty on our behalf over and over and over again. We may have been on the wrong side of Him, but we won't, don't want to live in a world where, we, where, where he, he is not King and where He does not reign. And if you're saying we have to worship Him, worship your false idol, or, or, or die, we would rather die and go ahead and be with the Lord. Where does that leave us today? Do you believe? Are you willing to risk anything on that belief? Because you will have to. Because saying you believe in God automatically takes you out of the center of your universe and puts Him in the center of your universe. And that's what we call order. With you in the center, that's what we call chaos, falseness, dream world. But with Him in the center, that's what we call order. That's when the world is lining up. That's when the sun is coming up when it's supposed to and going down when it's supposed to. That's when the tides come in and out on a regular basis. That's when God is in the center. But when you're in the center, it's nothing but chaos. And it doesn't end well. Do you believe? Are you willing to risk anything on that belief? Are you willing to risk everything on that belief? This past week I was reading a a book by um, a lady named Rebecca Reynolds. The name of it is Courage, Dear Heart, uh, Letters to a Weary World. And she writes different letters to to different groups of people. Um, Really good book. I I really recommend it. I'm actually listening to it on audio version, and I don't recommend the audio version. It's just, uh, you know how that is. Sometimes it's like the narrator kind of kills the thing for you. Um, and the author is the narrator, and she seems like she's a she's a great writer, but I'm not recommending that. But okay, I know I'm holding you up, but if you if you do it on double speed, it's not not as bad. <laughs> so if you get the book, do it that way. Here's what she in in her book um, Courage, Dear Heart. Um, she's talking to uh, expats, people that are exiles, people that are sort of out of their element, and, and they feel like and they're wondering, you know. Um, where God is um, in all of this stuff. And she reminds us, she reminded me of a story from C.S. Lewis' uh, book, The Horse and His Boy, uh, from the Narnia Chronicles. Anybody read uh, the Narnia Chronicles? If you're looking for something good to read to your kids, man, there's, there's really not anything hardly better than that. Um, but anyway, there's a story about, uh, that's, that's called The Horse and His Boy. Um, and at close to the end of the book, um, the boy has been through all of this horrible stuff, um, and he's riding his horse, and he's really dejected, and he's really um, despondent, and he senses a presence next to him. And this presence just was just next to him and doesn't say anything. And so finally the boy speaks up and, uh, and begins to talk, and the, the, the presence the, uh, has a voice, and he says, I, I've been waiting for you to, to speak. And of course, it's Aslan. It's the, uh, the, the character of a huge lion, um, that represents Jesus Christ. Um, but I'll just read a, a passage of it. The boy's named Shasta, he's riding alone, he's dejected and discouraged, and he has this presence next to him, which is Aslan, um, but he didn't know that it was La- Aslan. And finally, uh, he begins to talk, and the, and the uh, voice says, um, you know, I've been waiting for you to speak. And then Aslan says, tell me your sorrows. So Shasta told him how he had never known his real father or mother and that he had been brought up sternly by a fisherman. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beast howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded um, his traveling companion and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night and there was only one lion but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion that drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the, lo- slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that they could reach King Lu- uh, uh, Luna in time. And I was the lion you, do not, you did not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a little child near death so that it came to the shore where an old fisherman sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself. Myself. loud and clear and gay. And then a third time, my son. Whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. God himself was the, the lion that drove Israel into Babylon, that led Abraham to the promised land, that drove Joseph out of that land and sent Jonah to Nineveh cast the Hebrew children into the fiery furnace. God himself was that lion. What's God's purpose? We miss a big part of God's purpose if we're just thinking about what we're going to get out of it. Because God's purpose is to glorify his name in your life and in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and in the life of the people of our city and the leaders in our town and in your family. It's his purpose. He wants to do something in your heart. It's not all about you. He's got a bigger picture. He wants to glorify his name in the earth, and all he needs is people who are willing to have the courage to say, if I'm going to die, let me do it with some courage. If I'm going to lay down my life, let me do it joyfully and willingly. And that's when the glory of God is going to be seen in mighty ways, maybe because he delivers you, or maybe because he brings you through a fire that you never thought you could endure. One of the effects of being cast into a strange and hostile environment is it causes us to lean heavily on one another. Um, our son Josh was born and about two years old. He was diagnosed with a really bad heart problem. They said the only treatment for it was a heart transplant, and I always looked forward to that time with a lot of fear. He lived 17 years with his heart, that a horrible heart that just did hero duty, and I always wondered not how I would do, but how Becky would And what I actually found is when that time came, we grew closer and closer and closer together and I was able to love her in ways that I'd never loved her before. And I was able to be with her and she was able to be with me. Going through that fiery furnace made us lean heavily upon one another. Going through the trials, if you do it right, will make you lean heavily on your community of faith, on your family of faith, on the other believers, even if it's just being there with you. Or, even if it's just saying a prayer for you, it causes you to lean heavily upon one another. And I think it's because of this that God brings us through adversity sometime. So we'll stop being so self-reliant and we'll stop just looking at ourselves and we'll stop isolating so that we'll join together with other believers to, cert- to know the Lord in ways that we've never known Him. Yet. This was true of Israel. They came back from the promised land and you know what the first thing they did was? They built the whole wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. They learned how to work together in Babylon. They learned how to depend on one another in Babylon. They learned how valuable that little piece of property was in Babylon. And when they came back, they went to town because they knew how to work together. Let's stand together today. I know we've gone long this morning but it's been so rich and so good I'm not talking about the preaching I'm talking about everything else that we were doing so I'm just going to pray for you if you have a prayer request um, just hold your hand up right now okay Um, I know some people come they come to church with a burden and they really want God to touch them if you want me to pray for you I'll pray for you after the service I'm going to pray for you right now okay Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you that you are the the one lion. You are the one authority. You are in charge. And we have given our hearts to you, Lord, imperfectly. We're not good at this, God. But your Holy Spirit within us won't let us rest until we press into you, until until we seek you, until we find our rest in you. So, Lord, we come to you this morning as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Father, and we lift up these needs to you, which we acknowledge right now. You know better than we do ourselves. But what we're saying to you is we know you're the solution. We're not the solution. No bank or, or person or authority or, or king or, uh, or benefactor is the answer. You, you are the answer. No doctor, Lord is the answer. Even though you use them, we know that you are the, are the God who saves, the God who provides, the God who heals, the God who loves, the God who delivers. And we bring these needs to you today, Lord, and we just pray, Lord Jesus, not that you would make this way easy, but that you would be glorified when it's all said and done, that your name would shine like it did in Babylon, that people like Nebuchadnezzar would have to say, The God of Israel is the one true God. Be glorified in our lives. Lord. Thank you for it. Thank you for the victory that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have been given strength and power and provision that we don't have to look to the world for it. Lord. Thank you that we have in abundance everything that we could need or ask in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us shining lights. You said you are the light of the world. Oh, God, refine us and perfect us so that our light would be sure and bright and pure, Lord, in a dark and dying world. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.